Daniel 6, 1 through 28. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king, and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, who you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the dens of lions. 
they and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? O oh Lord our God, we thank you for the incredible gift of your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it today. And so speak to us now, we pray. Be our teacher, Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, it's just such a delightful thing to uh, be back with you here at Emmanuel. I'm always so pleased to join you for worship on a Sunday morning uh, where we can gather together, open God's word, uh, break bread with one another, and remind ourselves that we're on this journey together. It's also a, a privilege to be uh, in the pulpit. It's a privilege for any minister uh, to be in the pulpit. Uh, it is an incredible responsibility, so much so that the Apostle James writes, not many of you should become teachers, he writes, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So this is one of the reasons why I know your clergy team here at Emmanuel such, place such importance on the ministry of the pulpit. However, the primary reason we do so is that the Bible is to us the Word of God written. In our doctrinal documents as Anglicans, which we have inherited from the time of the English Reformation, state that the Holy Scriptures, these Holy Scriptures here, contain all things necessary for salvation. So that is why this, this Bible is so precious to us, isn't it? And it's been entrusted to us, we read, elsewhere in the New Testament, by God himself. And that's why we, we respect this book and the word of God that is in it, not at liberty to change it, to go ahead of it, get behind it, alter it in any form, but to receive it and ask God to teach it to us. So let's open our Bibles now. I've always found, haven't you, that the Bible is a whole lot better open uh, than it is closed. You've got the text printed here, fortunately, in the, uh, in the worship um, uh, bulletin this morning from Daniel chapter 6. You've been studying the, the book of Daniel, those of you who come week by week. And the central theme of the book of Daniel, isn't it, is the sovereignty of God. His sovereignty over history, his sovereignty over empires, his sovereignty over circumstances. We see that especially today. And his sovereignty over individuals. We see it again and again throughout the book of Daniel. We see it in Daniel chapter 6. The glory of the living God displayed marvelously in some of the most unexpected ways. God is 
unlike the evil imaginations of our heart, his ways are higher than our ways. And he often uses means that would be least expected. He uses the most unexpected of people. Have you noticed that? You get a bishop with a great North American accent like mine. He uses not only people in unexpected ways, he uses other means as well. And I call these the great reversals of God. He does things so often the other way around than we would do them. And this is preeminently seen for us where? It's seen for us at the cross on Calvary, where the Son of God, God's Son, is crucified, a crucified Messiah through those very means bringing about the destruction of the devil and hell and death and sin, and through that securing the completed redemption of God's people. What an incredible reversal. We probably wouldn't have done that. But that's the way God did it. And we're reminded of that all throughout the the Bible. You will have seen it already in this great prophecy, this book of Daniel, that God loves to do the last thing expected It frustrates us sometimes, doesn't it? It reminds us that his timing is not our timing. And that God comes in reverse to set forth the splendor of his grace. And so we begin with chapter with what? We begin the chapter with Daniel being persecuted, but we end it in verse 28 with Daniel moving from persecution to prosperity. That's the word that's used there. In verse 28, right at the very end, you'll see that if you've got the text there uh, open. And it looks as if, once again, the lights have gone out on God's people here in Daniel 6. It looks as if the lights have gone out only for there to be this great deliverance and display of God's grace. And once again, you see, his ways are not our ways. And the sooner we all understand this today, the better, the deeper we understand this, the more reassuring God will be to us. God's ways are not our ways. He will work through means that you would least expect to bring about the greatest displays of his glory. And we see something of that in this passage, that if you went to Sunday school, you'll remember it. Daniel in the lion's den. I said to Jim when he asked me to preach on this passage, in 31 years of ordained ministry, I have never preached on Daniel chapter 6, so I'm trying it out on you this morning uh, here uh, at Emmanuel. This this, This chapter is about the God of Daniel. That's how he's described there. Look in verse 26, the God of Daniel. And for me, The most significant thing about Daniel chapter 6 is not the deliverance from the den of lions. Yes, that's where all the fanfare is often placed in this chapter, isn't it? The greatest miracle for me out of this chapter is that Daniel continued to persevere in prayer, even knowing that his fate would likely be the den of lions. And yet... There is something greater than Daniel's defiant faith in this chapter, and that, of course, is God himself. It is God who's been set on display before King Darius and Daniel before us this morning. The God of heaven, he's here in these these words in Daniel chapter 6. And it's amazing stuff. You can tell I'm really excited about it. Uh, So I invite you to consider three things with me this morning. They're not all original to me. 
but I, I do hope they'll be as impacting to you as they have been to me as I prepared to be with you this morning. Here's the first thing. Look back in your passages printed there if you've got your Bibles. Uh, look in verses 10 and 11. Daniel depends on the Lord. He depends on God. I want you to notice that word depend. If you're taking notes, write that down today. King Darius establishes an ordinance and he enforces an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to the king, be cast into the den of lions. And when Daniel knows that the king's decree was signed, notice that, he, he waits until it's signed. He knows that it's signed. He goes up into his house, his windows being opened towards Jerusalem. Here he is in exile, and he kneels down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks, not to King Darius, no, but in defiance of this injunction, he gives thanks and prays to God. Defiant dependence upon God. And Daniel's discovered, and he's discovered praying and making supplication to his God. Now you might be asking, why the heck did he not pray in secret? Right? Why did he have to go and open the windows and be seen to be praying? In fact, did he even have to pray at all? Where does it say we have to pray every day, three times a day on our knees with the windows open? Right? Does that, can we find that anywhere in the Bible? Why did Daniel cause such a fuss? Was he an extremist, an alarmist? Why were the windows open? Why did he have to be defiant? And it's a really good question, and I'm so pleased you asked it this morning. For Daniel to have thrown away prayer, for him to have marginalized prayer, neglected prayer to Almighty God, would have been the equivalent of Daniel throwing away and dispensing his conscience dependent, conscious dependence upon God. We pray. Why do we pray? We pray because we are conscious of our dependence on God. Isn't that why we pray the Lord's Prayer? If you want to uh, listen to a series on the Lord's Prayer, this is a little bit of a plug. Uh, I've just completed a series on the Lord's Prayer. It's available at our website, adlw.org. And one of the things I say in that series is that prayer on a daily basis reminds us about our dependence on God for that 24-hour period. That's why we pray it each day. We pray because we're dependent upon God. And I, and I sometimes wonder why so many Christians do not pray. And I've come to the conclusion that, that Christians do not pray because they really aren't dependent on God at all. They've developed a dependence upon themselves. And they're self-confident in their own ability until there is a crisis. Have you ever noticed that? And we say, don't we? I've often heard it said, and no doubt I've said it myself, I guess all we can do now is pray. And the other person says, do you really think it's come to that? <laughs> Here's Daniel. His religious liberty has been removed. His freedom of worship is threatened, and he's more dependent on God than ever for God's deliverance. And notice, look with me uh, in verse 10. Daniel is not just praying once, right? He does it three times a day. Not just once in the morning with his hot chai. He's praying in defiance of a legal decree 
three times a day, like he's saying, stuff you, King Darius, right? He's been defiant because he's dependent on God alone. Morning, noon, and night. He sets that rhythm. It's a good rhythm for us. And what is the result of this thrice daily discipline of prayer? What comes of it? Well, it's not just the discipline of daily devotion. That in itself is a good thing. Through the devotion, what happens? A relationship is developed. A relationship with the living God. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to be a little naughty here this morning. Imagine the absurdity of someone coming into your home and saying, you are not allowed to speak to your spouse for 30 days. Now, some spouses might quite like that. I know that, right? But imagine the absurdity of an outsider or a government official saying, Amber, you just can't talk to him for 30 days. Imagine that. You will live in the same house, you'll sit at the same table, you'll eat the same food, but you can't talk to them. Would you not say, with respect, that's absurd? Because there's a relationship, isn't there, between a husband and a wife. There's a relationship that has to be sustained between those who live in the same house. And it's the same with the Christian. Behind the discipline of prayer is a relationship, do you see? A walk with the Lord. It's not just the discipline. That in itself is good. But the discipline leads us to relationship. The thought of 30 days without speaking to God is utterly absurd. The thought of going a day without speaking to him ought to be absurd to us. Look with me in verse 7 of our passage. Do you see it there? Whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king shall be cast into the den of lions. Well, the decree of Darius is not an arrangement that tolerates any debate, any discussion, or any dissent. Why will everyone want to pray to, uh, to none other but Darius? I mean, well, what, with respect, why wouldn't you do that? It's, it's in the interest of the state. Just pray to Darius. And we'll all get along fine. It's in the interest of harmony. It's in the interest of peace. It's in the interest of national and cultural cohesion. Just pray to the king. Well, this is totalitarianism. And it has always been the way throughout history. A German youth leader in 1936 said, and I quote, One cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Führer, serves Germany. And whoever serves Germany, serves God. And if you listen carefully in some portions of our nation today, you hear some of the same things. Substitute Darius and his kingdom, and I suspect you've got something of the atmosphere of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel's not been asked like his three friends back in uh, chapter 3, to prostrate himself and bow down to an image. He's only been asked in the world's minds to admit for a time one act of worship to the living God. That's all. <laughs> but he refuses, knowing full well it may 
cost him his life. Look with me this time in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went up to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he has done, as he had done previously. Surely, this is one of the great faith statements of the entire Old Testament. And it's one that, that we ought to get hold of. Total faithfulness to God, total dependence to and surrender to God's intervention, that's faith. That's defiant faith. That's dynamic faith. Daniel knew that prayer was an expression of our dependence upon the Lord. And he knew that he had more power with God on his knees than he did in the king's palace, in the king's chamber, among judges, in the senate hall. He had far more power with God on his knees before that open window than he ever had in any of his political positions that he had that had been bestowed upon him. And I want you to be sure that you see that before we pass from verse 10 this morning. Daniel depends on God. That's the first thing. Secondly, look with me this time, verses 12 through 18. Daniel is delivered to destruction. Do you see the journey? He has deliberate, he has dependence on God, but next he's delivered to destruction. It's not the way we would go about things. Look in verses 12 to 18. They came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king said, the thing stands fast. So, some, consp some conspirators enter the scene. They are nothing new, are they? They will often be a colleague, a business associate, a family member, a social acquaintance, somebody ready to denounce you to somebody else if self-interest requires it. Some of you will experience that. How easy it would have been for Daniel to compromise or rationalize. And how often we do that ourselves. We keep quiet. And something that's said ought to be confronted. We look down. We put on an uneasy smile. We tell ourselves we're just being tolerant and flexible. After all, Daniel's not being called on to explicitly deny the God of the Bible. He was just being called upon to acknowledge this new cultural and religious arrangement in Babylon. That's all. Just remain silent. No prayer to God, and it will all have been over, and the matter would have been closed. But he leaves the king with no choice, verse 16, and Daniel is cast into the den of lions. We're not told, but undoubtedly Daniel was at peace. He had been in his prayerful posture three times a day, praying to the Lord, walking with his God. He is referred to as a captive earlier in the book, but he could never truly be a captive because he's a son of the great king. He's a prophet of God. And that reminds us that no, no Christian, even today, can truly be captive to the state, and nor should we. Yes, they can throw you in jail, and they can remove your liberties, 
But the New Testament tells us that in Christ we are more than conquerors. Those whom Christ has set free, what are they? They are free indeed. And despite all of this talk about captivity, Daniel is indeed a captive. He is serving the king of kings, a a kingdom that can never be conquered, never has, is not, nor will be conquered ever. God's kingdom is an indestructible kingdom. It's important for us to notice that today. And do you notice, interestingly, that the focus of verses 16 through 20 is not what you might imagine about Daniel surrounded by lions throughout what must have been a very long night. You picture that however that's helpful for you. I have no helpful picture of what that must have been like except something miraculous happens, doesn't it? The full focus of those verses is, in fact, on this King Darius. He's a king in anguish. In fact, we read nothing in this passage about Daniel and the trauma he must be encountering in the lion's den throughout the night. We read about the king's dark night of the soul. There are no details about what the lions were like, how the hours were spent, what the experience was like, what Daniel felt, all the things that must have gone through his mind. Nothing. But we are given details about Darius. We know that he couldn't sleep. We know that he couldn't eat. We're told that he would not have any entertainment or music. And this is striking because in some respects in verse 12, have a quick look, you have his naivety, his compassion, verse 14, but then his utter helplessness. The king of Persia is described in verses 16 to 20 as helpless and weak, a man in great turmoil. And there are hints for me of Psalm 146, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. For when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is where, says the psalmist, whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord, his God. Oh, this could develop into a political sermon, but I won't go there. But it is a warning for evangelicals in North America. Our help, our trust, is to be in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth. And we are not meant to see, uh, we, we, we are not, we are meant, sorry, we are meant not to, to lose sight of what comes of those who trust in princes and the rulers of the earth. This is a king who knowingly condemns the innocent. He knows that Daniel is innocent, and he condemns him to a den of lions. And I hope you see the sheer wickedness of that, the injustice of that. Verse 17, we are told, but he seals the den of lions with his own ring, giving consent to what is happening. This is like he who signs and promotes legislation for their own selfish and political advancement. And where are we left in our passage? The den of lions is sealed. Sealed, we're told that specifically, and I don't believe we're meant to miss it, because there are echoes here, and uh, dear Deacon Novella read them to us. There are echoes of here of events century later that take place at the tomb of Jesus. 
You can read about them in the Gospels. The Jews approach Pontius Pilate and they say, remember how that imposter Jesus said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise? Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud, they say, that's the word they use, will be worse than the first. And so they went and made a tomb secure by sealing it, by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And here with Daniel, the seal of the state of Rome could not prevent his deliverance from the tomb. The seal of the state of, uh, sorry, of, of um, Babylon could not prevent his resurrection from his tomb of lions, just as the seal of Rome could not prevent the resurrection of Jesus from his tomb. Deliverance comes for Daniel from the lions, for Jesus from the tomb. So Daniel is delivered to destruction. But thirdly, look with me in this last portion, verses 19 to 28. Daniel, yes, was delivered to destruction, but then he's delivered from it. Look with me. Having delivered Daniel into the den of lions and sealed the opening with his own ring, look at the inexcusable question from Darius the following morning. End of verse 20. Do you see it there? Daniel, he says, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continuing be able to deliver you from the lions? What it must have been like at the den of lions that morning, just as it was for Mary at the tomb, for King Darius to hear words, my God sent his angel, shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. He is able. Why? Because he's the God of the Exodus. He's the God of Sinai. He's the God of the conquest. He's the God of creation and the God of history. This situation is not beyond him any more than any other situation than any person can ever face. God can do it. He is able. And the only words we hear from Daniel's mouth in this entire chapter are those words in verses 21 and 22. Just two verses. And so it's important to note them. And notice the primary focus is not on Daniel. It's not even on the mean-looking lions in the den. It's not on his long night of wrestle. Where is his focus? His focus is on God. In the original language here, it's emphatic. Daniel says, verse 22, My God sent his angel. All the emphasis is on God. My God brought me deliverance. He has sent an angel. He sent an angel to the three men in the fiery furnace in chapter 3. And now the angel's presence is with Daniel. My God sent his angel and shut the, the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me. Do you notice that there is no bitterness here in Daniel? There's no bitterness towards King Darius. No bitterness towards the conspirators who have plotted against him. No bitterness against God. No bitterness about the circumstances. There's just sweet delight in God himself. And Daniel is delivered because he believes God. 
The faith you saw at the window on his knees in prayer is the faith that has been sustaining him his whole life. The faith that we saw in chapter 1, when he purposed his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat, it's the same faith. And the faith of Daniel is in fact used in the New Testament in chapter 11 as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And before I conclude, it's important to note that judgment falls on those who seek to destroy the people of God. Those who dug the pit fell into the pit themselves. Those who set the snare are ensnared themselves. This is Haman all over again from chapter 3. And we have our examples of this all throughout the Bible. Those who designed the lion's den are cast into the den of lions, and we're not meant to miss that God loves us with a love that is far greater than human love, but he is also a God who judges sin and evil with perfect justice. So let me conclude. Where does this leave us here this morning at Emmanuel? I imagine, thankfully, that very few of us are in life-threatening situations. I'm fairly certain that most of us in this building are unlikely to face a den of lions later today. And yet, and yet we all face faith-compromising pressures every day, including attacks from Satan, who, as I said uh, to the council just before this service, prowls around like a what? A lion looking for someone to devour. So the question is, will we, we at Emmanuel, you and me together, will we trust God to deliver us? Because, because here's the mark of defiant faith. Are you and am I able to say, Lord, I believe you are able to protect me and my family from danger, illness, accident, and death. I trust you to deliver me. And I will not bow down and serve the gods of bitterness. Are you able to say, I believe you are able to preserve my reputation and my career if I take a stand for what I believe to be right. But even if I lose all of that, even if I lose it, I will not bow down and serve the gods of cowardice and go the way of the world. Are you able to say, Lord, I believe that you will open that door into that job, that ministry, that country, that opportunity which seems so right to me. I trust you to answer my prayer. And accordingly, I will not bow down and serve the gods of anxiety or despair while I wait. And are you able to say, Lord, I believe that you are able to help me find a life partner to enjoy your gifts of marriage and children. I trust you to do that, and I will not bow down and serve the gods of pity while I wait for you to answer my prayer. It's not so much, brothers and sisters, great faith, but faith in the great God of Daniel. So strong, so attractive, so necessary, oh, and at times so, so terribly hard. Daniel's testimony 
about faith in God here in chapter 6. His is the testimony of the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. That's his testimony here. I trust it's yours. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, uh, we confess that you are the living God, the true God, that you are the God who is steadfast and whose kingdom shall not be destroyed. And we are little children, like those who came forward before, coming as it were to our heavenly Father and praying, O God, increase our faith and give us the spirit of grace. Make us a praying people, people earnest about your cause and the advance of your kingdom. Give us, O Lord, ability to trust you, that you love to bring about those grand reversals, to set forth the glory of your grace, that you do all things well, and that in the least expected places and with the least expected people, and through the least expected means, you show yourself strong. May that give us confidence today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's recite and sing together where our hope is found and what we put our trust in. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are sealed, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live there in the ground his body lay Light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the 
power of Christ in me, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll We now come to the confirmation. I want to invite the confirmation candidates. Uh, if you would step forward and kind of uh, make a, a curve here uh, out in front. So come on forward, and we're going to, uh, the bishop is going to be asking you some questions. Um, but as they do that, and I'll, I'll let you sit down in just a second, but um, as they do that, you know, in in the uh, readings that we've had from Daniel, it's very, very clear that Daniel, uh, and, and the bishop was talking about this, uh, lived in a dependent and intimate relationship with God. That is, he trusted God, and there was a living relationship there. God wasn't just far off, God was close to him. And Daniel was willing to give public uh, display, public affirmation of his surrendered life to God. And these candidates are giving their public affirmation hmm. that they have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. And I want to point out uh, that Jesus Christ calls every one of us to surrender your life to him. And you do that because he has surrendered his life on the cross for you. And I know that there will be some of us here for whom God is distant. Maybe you believe in God theoretically, but a little bit dis distant. Well, I want to say and remind you, if you haven't already heard, that Jesus Christ came, gave his life, rose again, and calls you by name and says, come and follow me. And so right now, as you witness these confirmations and as you read along with the affirmations that they will make, Listen for the voice of Jesus Christ saying to you by name, this is what I'm calling you into. Amen? Amen. Reverend Father and God, we present these persons to receive the laying on of hands. Have they been adequately prepared? They have. Good. <laughs> Dearly beloved, it is essential that those who wish to be confirmed or received in this church publicly confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, become his disciples, know and affirm the Nicene Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments, and have received instruction in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and the Catechism of the Church. God's grace is imparted in Christ and signified by baptism, through which we are made God's children by adoption and given the Holy Spirit. By the power of, spirit, of the Spirit manifested in gifts and fruit, we are enabled to be God's people for the sake of the world. Now, these candidates desire publicly to confess their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and their commitment to follow Him. They also desire the strengthening of grace through the laying on of hands that the Holy Spirit may fill them more and more for their ministry in the church and in the world. Dear candidates, 
In your preparation, you have heard and received the gospel, the good news of God, God's grace in Christ. The gospel of John assures us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Later in the same gospel, Jesus promised that his sheep would hear his voice and that he would give them eternal life and that no one would snatch them from his hand. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus promised that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So the promises that you are about to make echo those promises made to us. So these promises make us bold to ask the Father to increase the work of the Spirit within you so that you may live as faithful witnesses of Christ throughout the days of your life. And therefore, I call upon you publicly now to embrace the gospel by faith. Do you here, in the presence of God and the church, renew your solemn promises and vows made at your baptism and commit to keep them? Do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I them. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? I them. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord and Savior? I do. do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament? Will you obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? I will. And brothers and sisters, will you who witness these vows do all in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ? We will. So let us now together with these candidates affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into heaven. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again, judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, we beseech you to strengthen these your servants for witness and ministry through the power of your Holy Spirit. Daily increase in them the manifold virtues of grace, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and true godliness, and the spirit of holy fear, now and forever. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. 
And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.